You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. We'll be in Colossians chapter 1 this morning, so if you have your Bible, please turn there with me. And I'd like to ask you a potentially controversial question. One that may be the source of disagreement between husbands and wives on the way home today. Here it is. Is it possible to have too many tools? And if it is possible, where's the line? Like how many is too much? Like 37, that's okay, but 38, mm, draw the line there. Obviously, you can tell I'm kind of joking here this morning. We're not going to have that debate. I went online and read a forum where they quoted some guy, and there was a spirited back and forth, and uh, one of the guys said something to the effect of, yeah, too many tools in the house is a problem. That's what you have a shed for. I thought, well, that's a man that's thinking on his toes. And I'm sure we could have a lively debate about this. For the record, I don't have many tools. I'm more of a minimalist when it comes to that, and I'm not handy. Uh, Several of you know that. But regardless of your view on having too many tools, not enough tools, my guess is that the ladies would probably say there's too many already. The men would say that I may need more down the road, so why not get them on sale now? We could have a disagreement about that. But I think we would agree on this. There is no one tool that meets every need. Okay, Ikea is trying to convince us that we can do anything in the world with an Allen wrench. But outside of that and putting together furniture with just that little itty-bitty Allen wrench, there is no tool that meets every need. There's no magic tool that can do everything you need, which is why you have different types of tools to fix different problems. And again, you could take that line of thinking and say, well, I need several hundred. You could take that line of thinking and say, I need five or six. I'll leave that to post-sermon debate and analysis, okay? That's unfortunately, though, the approach that a lot of people take in regard to their spiritual lives. They have many different solutions that fix their different problems. They think that they need a bunch of different things to fix the different things in their life. And that that may be true for tools, but it's not true for our spiritual lives. Because instead of looking to Christ alone for our spiritual need, it's so tempting, isn't it, to look to earthly things to give us spiritual solutions. We look around at, at the different things that our world offers us. I mean, Pastor Jerry read, do not love the world. And how often does the world tempt us and say, this will meet your needs. And we, because we're made of flesh and we're made of dust, we say, yeah, that's right, I do need that. But what does the scripture say? The scripture calls us back to being complete in Christ. That Christ is the answer for every spiritual problem. That there is no solution outside of him. Our hearts were made by Christ, for Christ, to be satisfied in Christ alone. And this is Paul's message, really, in the book of Colossians. Because the believers, as we'll see in a moment, were being tempted to find spiritual fulfillment, spiritual completion apart from Christ. So Paul reminds them that Christ is the answer for every one of their needs. So they should look to him alone. And that holds true even today. We face the same temptations. Our culture has many different philosophies. There are pseudo-Christian philosophies or Christian-flavored worldviews out there. Things that, that talk like they're Christians or people that talk like they're Christians or movements that say that they're Christian. And when you examine them, they're not really Christian at all. 
fulfillment is not found in any sort of spirituality apart from Christ. And so we need, even in the 21st century, we need to remember that Christ is the answer for every single one of our needs. And in this way, Colossians will minister to us by calling us to treasure Christ as the one who alone satisfies our spiritual longings. Today we will begin our study of Colossians, and before we really start walking through the text verse by verse, we'll need to cover some introductory items. And the things today, you, you, you may be thinking, well, I've heard introductory messages before, they're not that fun. Well, the things that we discuss today will actually set the stage for the rest of our study and the rest of our series. Understanding what Paul says and why he says it will help us to better understand the letter. And when we understand the big picture, it'll be easier for us to grasp what this book is teaching because there are some spectacular truths, some lofty truths. And when we understand the big picture, it'll be easier for us to then apply these truths to our lives and know why Paul is saying what he is saying. So let's look at the background of Colossians, and I'll start by reading just the first couple of verses of Colossians, which are pretty simple. Colossians 1, 1 through 2. I don't think I have the clicker today, so... Hang with me, Brandon. (laughs) Colossians 1, 1 through 2. I think that's the next slide there. Perfect. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer and ask God to bless his word this morning. Father, we come to you asking for the Spirit to, to minister to us. We can study this and examine this all we want, but if he doesn't show up, we are spiritually darkened. So illumine our hearts today as we study your word, make it relevant and applicable to our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, let's get a better idea of the city to which this letter was written. So let's talk about the background of Colossians, and let's talk about the city, specifically of Colossae. Where is Colossae located? Well, if your answer was in modern-day Turkey, you are correct. Hopefully you can kind of see it on the screen there. It's located in modern-day Turkey. And in Paul's day, this was called the province of Asia. So Asia, when you read about it in the Bible, is not the Far East like China or Korea. It is modern-day Turkey. This city was built in a valley on the Lycus River. And as you can see there on the screen on the top, it's situated close to two other cities, Hierapolis and Laodicea. Maybe Laodicea... uh, Uh, comes to mind because that was one of the churches of Revelation 2 and 3. Well, a major highway ran east to west through Colossae, connecting Ephesus with the Euphrates River Valley. And because of this highway, it was a major city around 400 BC, the time of Alexander the Great, the time of the Persians and the Greeks. But a north-south trade route was relocated through Laodicea, and when that happened, Colossae's significance declined greatly. In fact, by the time of the first century, during Paul's ministry, it was a small city and and really didn't have the status of the other two cities in the same area. But because of its location and its longevity, it was a city for hundreds of years, it really was a cultural melting pot. As best we can tell, this city was home to a, a number of different people. There was a large Jewish population that settled there in the 200s BC. There was a mixture of Persians coming Would that be coming from east to west? Yes. And then Greeks and Romans going from west to east. That meant, and here's the point of it, that meant that this was a culturally diverse 
and really a, a, a religiously diverse city with many different viewpoints and philosophies floating around. In the first century, uh, right around the time Paul wrote this letter, an earthquake rocked this region around 61, 62 AD. And the city was rebuilt with Roman government assistance. Today, however, Colossae is just a hill of dirt. It's called a tell. And it hasn't been excavated, but from what I could tell, uh, they might actually start digging over there in the near future, which would be kind of exciting if we could see what, what that would be. That's the background of Colossae. What about the church at Colossae? Well, what about them? Paul actually did not plant this church. In fact, he appears to never have met these believers. In, in Colossians 2, verse 1, Paul says this, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. What's he saying here? He's saying I'm burdened for you even though I've not met you, even though I've not seen you face to face. So if Paul didn't plant this church, who did? Good question, right? Well, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, Paul reminds the Colossians that they heard the gospel from a man named Epaphras. Colossians 1, 6 through 7. Since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So this man named Epaphras was the planting pastor, the one who came and brought the gospel to the city of Colossae and planted the church there. In chapter 4, we find out that Epaphras was one of them. This was his hometown. And that makes, we'll see in a moment, that makes it even more significant. Well, when did he plant this church? If we actually go back to the book of Acts, we can construct with pretty high certainty when and where and how Epaphras planted this church. So if you want to jot down Acts 19 and 20, that's Paul's third missionary journey. Paul's third missionary journey was centered in the town of Ephesus. He spent three years there in the town of Ephesus teaching and preaching the gospel. He started in the Jewish synagogue in Ephesus, as, his, as was his custom, and he lasted three months there before he got kicked out. He always got kicked out of the synagogue, but he made it three months there before they kicked him out, and then he moved to another part in the town where he found a lecture hall, and he continued to teach the disciples daily for two years. He was running a seminary. That's what he was doing. He was running a Bible institute and a seminary. And the effect of this, this ministry that Paul had was enormous. In fact, Acts 19.10 says this. And this, speaking of Paul's teaching and preaching ministry, and this continued for two years. So that, here's the result of that teaching ministry, all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. All who dwelt in the province of Asia. Well, what city was included in the province of Asia? The city of Colossae. It was part of that province. So somewhere between 53 and 55 AD, Epaphras hears Paul preach the gospel in Ephesus, and he's converted. Paul then teaches him the whole counsel of God. He studies the scriptures, and he's trained and after some time, he then gets a burden for his hometown and he travels back on that road and he plants a church in Colossae. And maybe he plants a church in Laodicea and Hierapolis too. It's an amazing story, isn't it? How God drew a man 
maybe brought him through the influence of another to, to Paul and his ministry. He gets saved and discipled and then goes back to his hometown and brings the gospel to them. That, that's amazing. And let's not miss this fact. That's the way Jesus intended the Great Commission to work. This is the Great Commission going on in the first century. Epaphras was gloriously saved by the grace of God, and then he was taught to obey everything Jesus commanded, as Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says. And then he obeyed the call of God to go bring the gospel to other people, to go and make disciples. That's what he did. He went from being an infant in the faith to being a spiritual self-feeder to leading others to Christ. And, and, And honestly, the reason the book of Colossians is in our Bibles today is because Epaphras obeyed the call of God and planted that church. If he doesn't do that, we don't have the book of Colossians. We are all the richer for it. How might, be God, how might God be working in your life? You say, what do you mean? Jesus commands every one of us to know him and make him known. That's our mission here at Red Rocks, to know him and make him known. He invites each one of us, not just the spiritually matured, not just the pastors and teachers, every single one of us is invited to participate in this mission. So what truths do you need to learn to move to become a self-feeder, to grow out of infancy spiritually. As you learn to feed yourself, how can you start looking around to the needs of others and invest yourself in other people and introduce others to Christ? How can you help other spiritual infants grow to become self-feeders? And the answer to those questions is not simply go plant a church. That's what Epaphras did. But it may be as simple as evangelizing the children that God's blessed you with. It may be as dramatic as surrendering to the ministry and and retiring early or switching career paths and getting training to go and to preach the gospel somewhere. This is my dream for our church. Not that we would just fill these walls and, and let's add some seats. Sure, that's great. But this, that's my burden. That people would come here and they would see the glory of Christ in our midst because we're just a bunch of normal people, aren't we? And as they see something unusual and supernatural here, they would see that the gospel is the good news of Christ and they would be saved by the Spirit of God. And that we would teach them and grow them and shepherd them and, and then eventually people would be called out from here, whether that's to teach in our, own, in our own body, whether that would be to go to the mission field, whether that be to go plant other churches in our country or in our city. Epaphras literally did what we are praying that people here would do. Would you pray that God would raise up people like this from our church? Would you pray that God would include you somehow? Now, I know for some, I just crossed a line. There's fear there. No, I could never do that. I I I could never get out of my comfort zone with this. Are we gonna surrender to God's call? Are we willing enough as a disciple to say, Jesus, I will follow you? Or are we going to say, I'll follow you as long as it's in my little box of comfort? Let's pray together. Let's ask God to grow. Not only our church in number, but in depth. And God to raise up men and women to go out from here. To preach the gospel to every creature.
Well, let's return to the first century, shall we? Around 60 AD, there's trouble brewing in Colossae, so Epaphras, the planting pastor, visits Paul. And this letter that we have is the result of their meeting. So who is the author of this book? It was Paul, and as we read in verse 1, and Timothy, our brother. Paul wrote this letter, because there's a number of first-person pronouns, I, I, or me, So what's Timothy's role? Timothy served as Paul's scribe. Paul often dictated the letter to someone else who wrote down his words. And uh, so he used other men to physically write down the letter. And then, like he does at the end of this book, he signs the letter. If you flip over to chapter 4, verse 18, he says, This salutation by my own hand, Paul. He's putting the signature on the end of the letter. And he's explaining to this church that's never met him that it's actually him. It's not some random person forging a signature. This is what I do when I write letters. I sign them with my name. That's what Paul's saying. So Paul and Timothy wrote, and they wrote around 60 to 61 AD. That's the date. And they wrote from Rome. Most likely, uh, this was written from Rome during Paul's imprisonment there at at the end of the book of Acts. And there's a lot of debate among commentators about Paul's location, and there's theories about maybe he wrote this while he was in Caesarea because he was in prison there. Maybe there was an unknown prison stay in Ephesus, which if Paul was in any place for more than a couple months, odds were that he was going to be in prison at some point. But we know that he was in Rome, and we know that that this is about the right time. And uh, to save you the time and the brain damage, I'm just going to suggest to you that Rome makes the most sense. And if you're curious about that, I can direct you to pages of reading where you can explore that for yourself. This was written from Rome during Paul's imprisonment, most likely. And it was probably written and sent at the same time as two other letters, Ephesians and Philemon. Paul wrote these letters probably around the same time. They're all in the same general direction. And the same people carried the letters. A man named Tychicus, a co-worker of Paul, and Onesimus, who was Philemon's runaway slave. They are the letter carriers of these different epistles. So that means they were probably composed around the same time and carried around the same time. And you may be thinking, why, why didn't Epaphras bring this letter back? Well, Paul says, actually, that he became a fellow prisoner in Philemon 23. And we can suggest that he was not able to carry the letter back if he was in prison with Paul. So this was probably written around the same time as these other letters. And actually, there's a lot of overlap between Ephesians and Colossians. These two letters are very similar to one another, yet they have some key differences. Colossians overlaps with Ephesians. The content is similar. There's a similar flow to the book as well. Though Ephesians really is emphasizing the glory of God displayed in the church, Colossians is emphasizing the glory of God displayed in Christ and Christ's preeminence overall. But there's many similarities. Both discuss the believer's identity in Christ. Both give a number of practical instructions for Christian living. There are a couple of differences, though, a couple of key differences. One of the key differences is that Paul had a deep relation with the Ephesian church. You remember how long he stayed there in Ephesus? Three years. That's a long time for Paul. The Colossians, by contrast, he had never met most of them. So there's a difference in relationship. And another difference is that Ephesians addresses really more of a big church perspective, a universal church perspective, while Colossians is specifically addressing a heresy. And that's Paul's reason for writing. That leads right into the next point. The reason for writing is that Paul is protecting this church from an invasive philosophy. Epaphras brought word of this 
teaching, this heresy that was infiltrating the church. And so what Paul does in this letter is he addresses the issue. He teaches sound doctrine and then gives practical commands to live by. We'll come back to what this heresy was in a few moments. But for now, just be content with he wrote this to protect the church from this philosophy. What are some of the major emphases of the letter? What are we going to discover over the next few months as we study this together? Okay, There are, are a number of things. I've whittled it down to six. And you're like, whoa, six, that's a lot. It is a lot. I went to cut a couple more and I felt like I was cutting off a limb, so I decided to keep all six. Okay, The major thing that this book teaches is Christology. Christology, the doctrine or the study of Christ. Paul lays out glorious truths about Jesus that inform our doctrine and affect our lives. They affect the way we live. Our theme verse for the year, Colossians 2.3, captures this. In fact, why don't we say this together? Colossians 2.3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Since it's so short and since I said the first half by myself, let's say it again. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What a great summary of Christ's value. I would encourage you to memorize this verse. Make it a part of your life as we treasure Christ together. So in the book of Colossians, we learn about Christ's work on the cross. We learn about his power, the power of his death, the power of his resurrection. We discover how he conquers the powers of darkness and freed us who are enslaved to sin. He who was once dead is now alive and makes us together alive with him. We who are dead in trespasses, Colossians 2. We see also Jesus' glorious position over all creation. Lord of all, Lord over all, preeminent in all things, the one by whom all things were created and for whom all things exist. Jesus is our treasure, our very life, Colossians 3, 3 and 4. Jesus is the answer to our spiritual needs. I'm super excited to get into all this because as we go, we'll study these things in context and we'll see how the position and the power and the glory of Christ radically changes us so that we don't need anything else. Second, we'll also see much about our identity as believers. And what Paul emphasizes is that we are united to Christ We are brought into union with him. Our identity is transformed. Colossians, actually, I counted yesterday, contains at least 18 different truths regarding our new identity in Jesus. 18 different ways that Christ's death and resurrection has transformed us if we have trusted in him as Savior. Each of those new markers of identity then shape the way we live. If you understand that, for instance, you are forgiven, that has dramatic effect over how you view yourself, how you view the hurts of other people as they've sinned against you. We'll get into that as we go. And so as we go through this study, I'll draw out these aspects of our identity because identity teaches us who we are. Now, I want to pause for a moment because identity is one of the five major questions a worldview must answer, okay? And identity... Identity is one of the five major questions. Here they are. Every worldview, every way of viewing the world has to have some answer for these things. You can see them on the screen. Origins, where did everything come from? Purpose or meaning, why am I here? What's the meaning of life? Why do I exist? 
morality, what is right and wrong, and who determines what is right and wrong. Identity, that's the one we've been talking about. Who am I? What is a person? And destiny, where am I going? What's after death? Would you say that our world is seeking the answers to these same questions today? Yes. (laughs) These are the very things that people are searching for. And as Christians, then, we need to understand what our scriptures, what our Bibles teach us about these things for, for two reasons. One, so we can tell other people what the scriptures teach and how to get to heaven when they die through Christ. But second, when we understand what we believe, we're not going to be swayed or blown off course by all sorts of other philosophies. And that's Paul's concern here in the book of Colossians. The Bible presents a clear, compelling answer to these things that make up a biblical worldview. And Colossians helps us immensely to not be swayed by competing philosophies of life. The third major truth that we'll see is Christian living or Christian ethics is the fancy term. This is simply how to live. And if you look ahead at chapter three, most of chapter three is commands. It's, it's imperatives. It's, it's directed toward our lifestyle. This is how we are supposed to live. And it's one of the great passages of the Bible that teach us how to treasure Christ in action. But it's also chapter three for a reason. Paul doesn't lead with what to do. He explains why first. He explains Christ first. He explains our identity first. And then in chapter three, he says, this is how you are to live. And so we'll see in Colossians one and two that there's doctrine. There's what's called indicatives. That's a state of being or or facts in the Bible. And those indicatives will then lead to imperatives. The fourth theme is prayer. Colossians contains five key passages on prayer. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about prayer because it's in verses 3 through 8. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about prayer because it's in verses 9 through 12. The fact that Paul had never met these people, I think, partly explains this. He, He didn't have a teaching ministry among them. He didn't know them personally, and he could encourage them. So what was his ministry toward the Colossians that he'd never met? He prayed for them. And from Colossians, we we learn that prayer is hard work. Paul labored for them in prayer. Paul struggled for them in prayer. I find that to be incredibly encouraging because prayer is not easy. If it's easy for you, please come tell me your secret. It's hard work. And when Paul says, I struggled for you and Epaphras labored for you in prayer, that's a big relief to me. Because this is spiritual ministry, and it's going to take spiritual effort as we depend on the grace of God. There are at least 19 different prayer requests found in Colossians. And that's very important because as we pray Scripture and pray scriptural truths for one another, we are aligning our will with God's word, God's revealed will. He said that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So how do you know if what you're praying for is going to be answered? Well, if you ask according to the will of God. And as we see in Colossians, there are several, 19 at least, prayer requests that will teach us how to pray. There's also an an unusual number of references to thank or thankfulness. Seven times this theme appears, and thanksgiving is a vital part of prayer, but it's also the fact that our relationship with Jesus, because of what he's done for us, naturally outflows into giving of thanks. 
In fact, in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, whatever we do is to be done in Jesus' name as an expression of our thanks to God. That's how integral thanksgiving is to our Christian lives. So Christians who don't give thanks are really antithetical. They're walking contradictions because if Jesus has transformed us and he's defeated the powers of darkness and he supplies us with every need, then we can't but help to give thanks. The last theme here, number six, the church's mission in the world. Paul explains his own ministry philosophy. Again, I think because these people didn't know him, so he's laying out at the end of chapter one, the beginning of chapter two, what his ministry goals are, what his plans are. And from that, we can see how the apostle applied the Great Commission. There are principles that we can take from that and apply to our church today. We also see how the church exalts our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the way we live. As people who are redeemed, we are to seek things above. That's our mission in the world, to seek things above, to present every man mature in Christ, to be rooted and built up in the faith and established just as you were taught. Those are the major themes. There are, there are more, <laughs> and we'll point those out as we go. One more introductory matter before we take a, a deep breath is our book outline here. Uh, this is the primary reason I wanted to put the handout in front of you good. It didn't get cut off. Uh, There's a standard greeting that we just read. There's an opening section of Thanksgiving with three different parts. The body of the letter begins at the end of chapter one, and there are are three parts to the main body. There's Paul's ministry burdens. There's the the dealing with the, the deceptive philosophy, and then there's Christian living in chapters three and early chapter four. And then there's closing greetings. And in fact, there's many closing greetings there. That's the outline we'll follow. It'll keep it, I'll keep that in front of you and uh, to prevent you from having a hand cramp to try to get it all down, uh, you have a hand out there. Now I recognize uh, this is a lot of information. It's like drinking from a fire hydrant, as they say. My, na- my aim is not to overwhelm you, all right? My, my aim instead is to let you, let you see the expanse of truth laid out before us. I like to hike 14ers. I like to hike mountains. Some of you are like, you're nuts. Some of you are like, sweet, let's go next week. Not next week. I don't like hiking in the snow. But when you get to the top of a 14er or a high ridge, you see an expanse in front of you. And it's breathtaking. Sometimes you just want to stay up there and just look. And what we've done today, in a way, is go up this, this mountain and look at the expanse of what we're going to cover so that we can see the big picture of the book, and then as we study it verse by verse, we'll see how each of these things play out. And my prayer is that the book of Colossians will deepen our faith, will shape our day-to-day living, that we wouldn't just come here on Sundays and say, oh yeah, that was a good sermon. It was just an okay sermon. Maybe it was a bad sermon. We wouldn't have a comment on the preaching. Instead, we would be so captured by the word of God that when we leave here, we are burdened to change by the grace of God. That our exposure to the, to the truths in our Bibles would then affect us Monday on the job site, Tuesday at school, Wednesday as we fellowship with others. Because the word of God is not written for theory, it's written for practice. And that's our aim together. Now we have a few moments left, so let's shift and address the situation at Colossae. I mentioned it a few minutes ago. The situation at Colossae. There was an invasive heresy here that prompted Paul to write this letter. So the big question is, what was that heresy? 
what was, what was so bad in that church that Paul decided to spend his valuable time in jail even. I guess he had a lot of time in jail. So, But what, this, what made Paul write this letter that the Spirit chose to inspire? What was it? And the really scholarly answer is we have no clue. Well, we have some clue, as we'll see in a moment, but we don't know. We don't know. Uh, this, this really illustrates the challenge of reading New Testament letters. These letters are a dialogue. They're a conversation between author and recipient. But how much of that conversation do we get to read? One side. It's like if someone answers the phone in, 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 you know, in the room with you, you can kind of figure out what they're saying based on, on their side of it. But you have no clue what the other person on the other end of the phone is saying. That's kind of the way we are here. We're reading this letter, and he's addressing these different concerns, and we're trying to piece the clues together. I kind of like to think of it as a cold case investigation. You've got certain clues that you can kind of rearrange, and you can come up with several theories, but at the end of the day, you, you can't interview witnesses. You can't really reconstruct the scene of the crime. Things have changed. Maybe the, maybe the setting has changed. That's, that's difficult. We work with a limited number of clues to piece together what was going on. So what do we know? We know that there was something at work, a heresy or, or something. Colossians 2, 8 through 23, give us at least 11 clues that describe parts of the teaching. Uh, and from these clues, I think we can reconstruct several kind of essential elements, okay? The first element of this heresy was that it, it included some Jewish ideas. In 2.16, Paul mentions... Food and drink. He says, let no one judge you in food or in drink. That's probably referring to Jewish food laws. He also says, or let no one judge you in regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And that is actually a reference back to Jewish festivals or feasts or holidays. So, so there's some Jewish elements to it here. There was, as we mentioned a few moments ago, there was a sizable Jewish population. So that, that does make sense. Second, this heresy, for lack of a better term, practiced mystical spirituality. Okay, what do we mean by mystical? Mystical means it, this focused on spiritual experiences over against a body of truth. So the emphasis was on what we can do rather than on what we believe. Colossians 2.18 talks about the worship of angels Sometimes when I'm reading and studying for, for teaching or preaching, I like to picture the commentators as sitting around a table having a debate with one another. And a lot of times they're in agreement, but sometimes like this worship of angels, they're, they're pounding the table screaming at each other. And it's kind of entertaining, actually. There's a lot that goes on to, that we're like, okay, what does this worship of angels mean? Well, we have about two months to figure it out. So you can pray for me with that. Colossians 2.18 also mentions false humility. 2.23 says that there are regulations that have an appearance of wisdom or asceticism. There's, there's rules. Don't taste this. Don't touch this. Don't handle this. So it, it seems like there's, there's more of an experiential approach to religion rather than a body of truth. Third, this heresy actually could, could be more of a philosophy or a worldview than, than like a false teaching. So, so don't picture in your mind you know, like the Spider Church or Jehovah's Witnesses that have, they're a recognized cult. That's not, I think, what's going on here. 
There's more of a, a worldview at play. Colossians 2.8 says this, Beware lest anyone cheat you th- through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, a worldview, and not according to Christ. So if we put all this together, I think, and where a lot of the commentators land, is that this was probably a syncretistic worldview. A syncretistic worldview. Uh, Some big words today, I understand. So what is syncretism? Syncretism is the practice of combining parts of different religions and Frankensteining them together. That's syncretism. I'm going to pick this philosophy or this practice or this truth, and it's kind of like going to a spiritual golden corral, and you have a buffet in front of you, and you pick what you like. And if you've ever been to Golden Corral, you know, you can have steak on your plate mixed with like, I don't know, you put ice cream on the top if you want it, if that floats your boat. A little weird, but if that floats your boat, so be it. That's syncretism. In some ways, syncretism is harder to deal with than a false religion because it, it has various elements of truth in it. We know that the best way to make a lie convincing is to do what? It's to dress it in the truth or add, sprinkle truth in with it. So this could be a combination of Jewish influences, local folk paganism, some elements of Christianity maybe. And Paul's strategy is, is not to, to go line by line and, and re- rebuke this. He does address it to some extent, but his strategy is actually much simpler. He presents Jesus in all of Christ's glory and says, just look to him. Because in him, you have everything you need. In him, you are filled. In him, you are complete. In him, you are redeemed. In him, you are forgiven. They didn't need to mix Jesus with Jewish feasts. They didn't need to seek a paranormal or a mystical experience and worship angels to get to Christ. All they needed to do was treasure him and receive him and view him properly. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, 2, 6, and 7, so walk you in him. That's his advice to them. And what's really amazing, I think, is that these very same things are found in our culture today. That's why the book is so helpful for us. I think there are at least three different points of contact with our American culture. The first point of contact is this. Our individualized culture also practices syncretism. What do I mean? We construct a personalized religion of whatever spiritual elements appeal to me. Isn't that our world that we live in? It's very postmodern, meaning I don't have to worry about objective truth. I'm going to get to that in a moment. So whatever is true is is whatever I feel it to be true. We're also hyper-individualistic. We only care about ourselves or our rights. There's little thought to others or a community of people to be with. And, and there's a phrase out there, if you're younger, you're probably familiar with this. It's curating my life. We think of curating as an art. You, you, know, you pull together different pieces of art to, pre- to present a, a gallery. Well, curating my life is what people say when they're intentionally shaping everything about their lives so their lives are perfect. However, religion fits into this worship is added into their personal pantheon. That's what's going on. Second, our culture loves spirituality without substance. It it hates objective truth. 
This heresy had a form or an appearance of spirituality without any basis for it. This is spiritual experiences divorced from objective truth. Maybe you've heard the phrase, I want to be spiritual without organized religion. Maybe someone's told you that. I'm spiritual, but I, I'm just not, you know, organized religion, tried that, it's not my thing. There's actually a term for this, I found out. This is referred to as SBNR, spiritual but not religious, or SBNA, spiritual but not affiliated. The great source, Wikipedia, says that these designations are used to describe someone who is a spiritual person but doesn't view organized religion as a valuable avenue for spiritual growth. Well, how do you take spirituality and divorce it from religion? It's like divorcing gender from personhood. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Many people pick what, whatever we want and call it truth for us. Uh, Oprah Winfrey tells people to, quote, speak your truth. Well, this advice emphasizes personal experiences and personal preferences above objective truth. You all know as well as I do, there's no such thing as my truth or your truth. We don't put personal pronouns in front of the truth. It's either the truth or it's a lie. And you can't say it's my truth. You either agree with it or you deny it. Truth is truth. Our culture, third, views religion as primarily a means to make me feel good. This is what's called therapeutic religion. Therapeutic. Practicing religion, going to church, doing good works. These are all opportunities, not for me to relate to a deity, but for me to feel better about myself. Well, I did my religious duty. I served a meal at a local shelter. I gave some of my, my income, you know, a couple hundred bucks at the end of the year. I feel pretty good about myself because I practiced something spiritual. That's not Christianity. Christianity does involve giving, but it's so much more than that. This therapeutic approach to Christianity is actually very popular. Uh, there's a whole lot more to say about it. It's very deceptive because it rejects the truth claims of the Bible but dresses itself in Christian garb. People who, who would subscribe to this believe that God wants good things for me and wants good people to go into heaven. And I believe the Bible and I believe in Jesus. But when examined on like basic doctrine, like is there a literal heaven and hell? Did Jesus, is Jesus the sinless son of God? These sorts of questions, a radically small number of them would deny these basic tenets of Christianity. The therapeutic approach to Christianity is really an unbiblical philosophy that uses Christian language. Its key tenets are comfort, convenience, and community. Many Americans, I think, would say that these are the core teachings of the Bible. Yeah, yeah, I, I go to a church and I have a community and, 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 and God wants my comfort and he blesses my, my life so that I can have some convenience in it and, and I don't have to do anything too hard. This worldview can easily seep into the church if we're not careful. Lest we forget, Jesus called his followers to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Yes, there's a community of people who do that, but that's not comfortable, and that's certainly not convenient. So what's the solution to all these things? In the face of all these other worldviews, Paul points us to Christ. He calls us to have a Christocentric worldview. One more big word, Christocentric. 
calling Jesus to be the center of our lives. When Christ is your center, you are treasuring Christ. If you want to view it as he calls us to treasure Christ, that's a great way to put it as well. Paul's aim in Colossians is not just to tell you how Christ is the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. He shows you how Christ is the greatest treasure in all the world. How does he do that? I have to move quickly. Three ways that he does that. First is the supremacy of Christ. He points to the supremacy of Christ and says there is no one greater in all the universe. And that's still true today. Jesus is the object of our affections and the aim of our hope. Second, he points to the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus is more than enough to meet our needs. For both salvation and sanctification, his work is finished because there's nothing left to be done. And it's the same way that we are sanctified. We don't say, I'm saved by grace and then I am and sanctified by works. That's Galatians 3, 1, 1 through 6. We are saved by grace and we live by grace. We are saved by faith and we live by faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Colossians 2.10, you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And so if we're complete in Jesus, what more do we need? What do we lack if we are already complete in Christ? Third, Paul shows us the power of God, the power of Christ. Christ's power makes us alive and grows us spiritually. He defeats our enemies and rescues us from darkness. And so no other religious habit, no other therapeutic feeling can give us the power to conquer sin. That comes only from our Savior, Jesus Christ. So living a Christocentric life is the natural and rightful response to Christ. Our culture teaches us to pursue many other things, to look for solutions in all the earthly places. But what does Colossians 3.1 say? If you've been raised with Christ, seek things above where Christ is. That's our call. That's our call. Christ alone is the answer to our needs. And so as we close, I would ask you and encourage you to, to pray to the Lord, to ask for his wisdom so that if there's any area of your life that you are not looking to Christ in, that you would repent of that and forsake that and come back to him. That, that as a result of, of, of seeing him today in the word, you would live with him at your center, that you would treasure him more and more. That other things, other earthly things that have a grip on your heart would be loosened and that Christ would be your treasure. Let's pray that together, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you for this book. But thank you more importantly that it shows us Christ, that our Savior is glorious majestic, and it's in him alone that our faith is found. As we reflect and pause to give attention to our hearts, minister to us. May your spirit be active, shaping us and showing us, pointing out areas of our lives that are not complete in him, that we have gone away from him and abandoned him to seek out solutions in some other way. Minister to us, Father. Give us wisdom, we pray. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoy this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.